Welcome to this week's installment of Keeping Track. My guest today is the director of the global design agency Inish, which she co-founded with her partner Frank O'Connor to create value through design for sustainability. She's an international expert and thought leader on eco-design, sustainable design and circular economy. She has worked across large and small companies in a diverse range of roles and sectors, including furniture, logistics, consumer electronics, renewable energy and bioplastics. She's the former operations lead at the award-winning Eco-Design Centre. She created the first city maker walk, piloting the approach in Bristol, Glasgow and Manchester. In 2021, she received the Irish Tatler Woman of the Year Award in Art and Design for her leadership in sustainable and ethical design. And alongside her partner, Frank O'Connor, they are on a vital crusade to highlight the amount of dereliction and vacancy in her cities, towns and rural areas to bust the many myths around tackling dereliction in a housing emergency. She's here to talk about what it is she does and to play some music that she's picked out, especially for us today. It is the ever-impressive... Jude Cherry. Thanks a million, Dave. Do you want to play us your first tune? Yeah, so the first song is a team tune, not a typical song. It's one I sang a lot as a kid, so it's Captain Planet. Wind, water, heart, go planet! By your powers combined, I am Captain Planet! Captain Planet, he's our hero, gonna take pollution down to zero. He's our powers magnified. That was Captain Planet we just listened to there. Uh, it's, a, as I said, a team tune. I would have watched a lot of the cartoons, but also sang a lot in the playground as a kid. It's, um, for me as a child, I remember watching news reports on acid rain, ozone depletion, um, and so Captain Planet probably visualized and brought together what was happening around the world at the time with a lot of oil spills and stuff. So it's something that Definitely, for me, I remember having a massive impact on me. It made me really question a lot of things. Um, what we were doing as humans to the planet. Um, but also, we, at the time, there was like we were recycling a lot as kids um, in this local school, collecting papers and glass and stuff. So it's been yeah, key, a team that's kept through my whole life, really, trying to be that. <laughs> Understand what it means to be a Captain Planet, but I suppose for me it's not just about Captain Planet. wasn't just about the one hero. It was about the um, the children. So it was all about teenagers and about teenagers taking responsibility and fighting those polluters, and um, but by working together and working across different cultures. So it was like teenagers from five different parts of the world who had to come together and come over overcome those cultural challenges um, and really work together to to beat the, the pollution. So from Captain Planet, is that what would have informed your third level education? It wouldn't necessarily have informed my decision of what course to choose. Um, so I struggled a lot in school. Um, I had to repeat a year in primary school. I'm, I have dyslexia. I um, had a lot of prop communication and language challenges throughout my life. I had a lot of uh, speech therapy. I didn't speak till I was three and a half. I didn't read till wasn't able to read uh, till I was about seven or eight. And um, so for me, picking a course in terms of I was lucky. I come from um, a, a middle class family. I went 
I went to a middle class school, so it was kind of expected to go to university. And in the late 90s, university was more or less free here or definitely way cheaper than it is now. So it was kind of assumed I would study, but things like doing, I would have loved to have studied psychology or sociology particularly, but I, the chance of doing anything with reading or writing was just off the table. So engineering, art, and where my interest, luckily, very lucky to have gone to DCU for like a couple of weeks, STEM for women in STEM. And there I learned what product design was. I fell in love with the idea that we can design the world around us, the products around us. And that really spurred my choice to go and study design then. That's what your degree was in then? Yeah, industrial design. And then around third year in industrial design, I read a book called Design for the Real World, with the opening sentence of it, the most destructive profession in the world is design or the second most and the most destructive is advertising and so the book is about how designers were designing products to be short life to be thrown away with consequences of pollution across the supply chain to get those materials and products supplied to us there's a lot of pollution and then those products create a lot of waste at the end of life so it was a book written in the 70s from Victor Papinac but it brought back Captain Planet so it brought back a huge amount of guilt for me um, and a, a huge questioning of what, what I was studying, why I was studying it. Um, so I did struggle going back in my fourth year to finish it. I wasn't going to go back and I only kind of decide, decided in the last few weeks before going to fourth year started to finish off my degree. Um, but I decided then to focus on sustainability. I graduated in 2003. Sustainable design wasn't really a thing back then. Um, and I didn't really have enough confidence at that stage to kind of go out on my own. Um, so I went and tried to work in the real world, <laughs> what's considered the real world then. Uh, ended up working in furniture design, interiors, um, and then moved to the Netherlands and worked for a, a big sat-nav company called TomTom, who were doing um, sat-navs for cars. So I was doing new product introduction for them. So yeah, so it was, I, I, yeah, I, that then spurred on, I suppose, probably an aspect of the, the next song being um, Designed for Life by Manic Street Preachers. Kind of had a bit of a breakdown in that job. I loved the job. I loved the people I was working with. But I had a realisation my dad had died um, not long after I started it. I lasted for about a year or a year before. I suppose I was there actually for three to four years. But um, it was that realisation that what I was doing wasn't tying back to what I wanted to do or who I was or what, what meant what was important to me and um, so I found myself going to work crying on the way to work and I, I enjoyed the job so it didn't make sense it wasn't the job that was causing that stress but it was yeah, I was working for a company that was making satellite navigations to make driving easier and um, so fundamentally it wasn't aligned I loved the products I love products I love design I love how we supply chains how we get things moving around the world but that disconnect really um yeah it was a that's when i decided to go back and do a master's then in environmental management
that was Manic Street Preachers with Design for Life and I was picked by my guest today, Jude Sherry. So Jude, you're now living in Amsterdam and you are working for TomTom and you decided to go back to do your master's in environmental management. Where did you do that? So I'd done that in the University of Bath. It was a distance learning course at the time. So I started when I was still working with TomTom. So it was something that I can still work. I had had a mortgage. I just bought a house in 2007, just (laughs) November, just before the crash. So at this stage, everything was already um, collapsing. And so the market values were already going down. So I had a big mortgage with a huge interest (laughs) to pay off. Um, so I just yeah decided to go back and do the masters. Um, Tom Tom were supporting me initially on that, uh, but after about a year of that, it it wasn't enough. Um, for me, for my mental health, I needed to focus more on that and make a, a bigger uh, shift towards sustainability. So I quit my job, permanent job. Um, <laughs> and decided to focus full time on the masters but then also try and get a job in sustainability a big focus of what i was interested at the time and that's why i picked the course to do as well because it was the only course i could find with a distance learning on what's called life cycle assessment and where you look at the full environmental impacts of the product across its life cycle so that was the area i was interested in focusing on and when you came out of your masters, did you get a job straight away or did it take time? No, uh, it took about a year. I ended up working then for a little while with an ESG company, so a company that m- looks at how uh, companies are rated against their environmental, um, social and governance, and that's used then for inf- investors for ethical investing. So I was looking at how you rank those different types of performances and then that information goes to banks or investment brokers and stuff and um, so i done that for about six months and then luckily i uh, went on a summer school to china um, around sustainability and sustainable design there i met an irish lady called sharon prendeville and a uh, meryl class a belgium guy they were both working in wales with a guy called Frank O'Connor, who ran an eco-design centre. And then after we came back, a job came up there around life cycle assessments for a big European project. I applied to it and moved to Wales. When you got that job, did it immediately get a sense that you were in the right place, you were going in the right direction? Absolutely. It was the first interview, really, that I had ever done that I didn't feel like I had to lie. And I don't mean like lie about my achievements, but lie about what I wanted and why I was there. It was, it was natural and that that natural feeling yeah has been there ever since really in what I've decided to do that decision to leave my job in TomTom at the time my senior managers told me I would regret the decision and I haven't regretted it one day yeah. since this is where you met Frank how long after you met Frank did Anish become a thing yeah quite quite a few years later Anish started he after a couple of years after he left the centre and then after I left the centre as well um, and then we got to know each other romantically, and then we decided to start a niche together. We moved to Amsterdam, I suppose, is when we probably officially launched a niche fully then. Do you want to give us another tune before we get stuck into that? Yeah, so the next song is Five Years by Bowie, a song about environmental disaster that's going to kill the world in five years. Pushing through the market square So many mothers sighing had just come over We had five years left to cry in News guy wept and told us Earth was really dying 
cried so much his face was wet Then I knew he was not lying I heard telephones, opera house, favorite melodies I saw boys, toys, electric irons and TVs A brain hurt like a warehouse, it had no room to spare I had to cram so many things to store Everything in there, and all the fat skinny people from Bowie the frustration and the uh, tension about running out of time and unfortunately when it comes to climate change and biodiversity loss we have run out of time so 13 years ago we were told we've got 12 years left to not stop climate change because at that stage it was about 12 years 13 15 years ago did, did the news come true then that climate change was happening up until that point we, we the belief was that we can stop it then it was okay, we can manage it. We've got 12 years to keep it to half a, or half a degree. And now, unfortunately, we're looking at about two and a half degrees. Um, so we're, we are, we've run out of time. We now have to change our tactics to radically change. And every year we leave it another year, every, that those changes become harsher in what's required. So it's not just about mit mitigating, it's about adapting now as well. We're gonna have to adapt to a radically different world. Yeah. over the next few years to what, what, we, what we're currently living in. I believe that that's why you set up an issue with Frank, was to, to try and tackle that through design. Yeah, the challenges we have with an issue, we take on what's considered systems design approach. 
the challenge that I is no one actually wants to maybe pay for systems design. And they want to maybe, especially say if we're working with companies who maybe manufacture products or architects who design buildings, is that they want to talk about maybe the individual materials. Um, so taking a, a full life cycle approach is still beyond um, where they want to take their sustainability journey. Um, so it can be it can be challenging to communicate that systems approach to people that it's not just about changing one thing and that's going to solve all the problems. It's about how, how maybe it's about how you use the product and how you maybe or building and how you make sure it lasts for as long as possible. And, and that's where it takes a maybe slightly different approach to especially a typical design agency where it's about designing new products. Uh, continuously and coming out with new stuff all the time this is actually how do we appreciate what we already have because the most sustainable product or building is the existing one it has a load of embedded carbon in it it's already had environmental impact destruction uh, to extract those materials to manufacture those products to ship them across the world and for us to get them and use them so how do you make sure as as designers that you design products or buildings that people want to keep around for a long, long time. And then as a business, how do you make sure you can generate revenue through different ways of servicing that rather than maybe selling more products? So it can be quite a shift change for companies to understand those, how to make that transition. And it can be quite daunting for them to do, especially if they're in an industry that isn't already making those changes around them. And coming from Amsterdam and the Netherlands, compare Ireland to how they do it over there. Is, it a, is there a vast difference compared to the rest of Europe? How is Ireland doing in that sense? Um, well, in terms of our general stats, we're pretty bad in Ireland. So we've got the highest carbon footprint per capita in Europe. Um, now, the Dutch aren't particularly great on that either because they use a lot of coal power electricity. Um, but we've also got, in Ireland, we've got the second highest linear economy. So... The idea is that is that we the linear economy is our current system is where we're taking raw materials, making products, using them for a short period and then disposing of them. We need to transition to a circular economy and a, trans, a circular economy is what we had before. Um, de- definitely up until the 1940s, predominantly how most people would have lived in Ireland, even up until the 80s, most of us would have grown up in a much more circular economy than what we have now where we repair a lot more where we reuse, where we have hand-me-downs and second-hand stuff, um, where we cycle and where we maybe don't, don't all have access to private cars as much. Um, so where, we, where we're using resources in a way that you get as much value out of those resources as possible and um, before eventually throwing them away. So a circular economy is about extending that value, but also not throwing the products away at their end of life and bringing that value back into supply chains either for remanufacturing or eventually uh, for recycling. So is Ireland pretty poor in all of that? Statistically, we are very poor. We're one of the worst in Europe on that, and the second worst. The difference with Ireland is we culturally, we're a lot closer to a circular economy uh, in the past, in the 80s and 90s, than other cultures would be. Um, So like the UK or, or the Netherlands, they would have had a much more linear economy for longer than we had. So we, we've transitioned from a circular to a linear economy much quicker and in a shorter period of time. So in terms of our culture, it's we know what it's like. We grew up with it. The challenge in Ireland is that we associate a lot of those behaviours with poverty. And so we, we think now we're rich. We don't need to go back to that. But the reality is that unless we... Unless, 
we don't have technological solutions to climate change at the moment so we need to radically shift all areas of our lives and that does mean going back to how we lived material reality of the 80s not in terms of you know we need make sure everyone has good food make sure everyone has warm homes um but our material or you know fast fashion or consumption levels we produce one of the highest electronic waste plastic waste in ireland so how we live on a day-to-day basis does need to change let's take another tune so the next song is trees by pulp The Trees by Pulp and I was picked by my guest today Jude Sherry um, is there a reason why you picked that tune I'm thinking of the robot trees and Patrick's yeah, Tree absolutely. and Grand Parade yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a homage <laughs> to the robot trees the trees are, are important yeah uh, a, that is a struggle compar- living here as compared to living somewhere like Amsterdam is that lack of trees in the city um, and in our urban spaces the we climate is 
existential to our survival, but also biodiversity is, and we're losing 70% of our biodiversity globally. Um, so keeping it's this, the small things with biodiversity and the big things, so global supply chains, but also about how we, you know, rewild our gardens and no more may and stuff like that but also appreciating the trees we have around us so if anyone's not familiar a couple of years ago cork city council spent 380 grand on five robot trees with the idea that the robot trees would clean the air of the streets on patrick street and again that's just it's another example of using technology as a as a what's called an end the pipe um, cleaning system that instead of actually stopping the pollution in this case which would be cars and we're meant to have a ban of cars on Patrick Street uh, at certain hours of the day. It's not enforced. So we're putting, bolting on a technological solution at the end of that instead of actually preventing it. And that technology solution, in the case of these robot trees, have been proven not to work in other cities already, in Glasgow, in, in the Netherlands. Um, other cities have trialled them. They've ran air pollution tests and found they actually don't work. It's like the equivalent of um, trying to heat a room with the roof off. You know, you're trying to clear clean air, but there's always air moving around. With the robot trees, they also use, actually these ones, some of them are passive, but these ones in Cork City use a huge amount of energy. So they use, I can't remember the stats now, but they they hu huge amount of water and energy that it's it's a couple of households. You know, talking about trees and, and biodiversity in the city, we're recording this interview in July of 2023. And just recently, the Freemasons Lodge, they were granted more space in Bishop Lucy Park. And I think they have to, take down 10 ash trees? I think it's 15. Is it 15? Yeah. yeah. It's 15 ash trees. And then the city council is also taking down another six or seven trees in the in the park as well. The Freemasons are extending their building out to the back of the park and they're taking over. They're officially getting transferred 54 metres squared, but they actually need a bigger space around that for the construction, for the foundations and for the access points as well. So it will be bigger than what they're officially saying. And then Cork City Council are also regenerating uh, Bishop Lucy Park. But what they're doing is that they're putting in pavements. Um, so they're, they're slabbing over a lot of the park. So they're removing the green space. Uh, and that causes a multi that's going to cause a multitude of problems besides Bishop Lucy Park being one of the only city centre parks on the city centre island. Yeah, so it's a, it's a tiny park already. Getting rid of the small amount of green space and trees there is going to reduce the... The ability for us as temperatures rise in Ireland, we're not used to hot temperatures here, um, but as they rise, we're going to need cool spaces and nature, uh, green uh, green spaces and trees are one natural and easy way to, to cool the urban environment around us. And also because Cork's a marshland, it floods, the water floods from underneath, uh, but also from rain coming down. And so opening up, it's happening a lot across Europe now where cities are actually opening up their pavements and letting the rain then soak into the ground directly through grass and, and plants and stuff. So it helps you manage the rainwater and we already have flooding, a lot of flooding issues in Ireland or in Cork and that's unfortunately paving over too much of our, of our city is, is going to cause more problems. Do you want to give us another tune? Yeah, so another tune, the next tune is again another tree song um, and this time the fake plastic trees by Radiohead. Green plastic watering can For a fake Chinese rubber plant And a fake plastic girl 
Fake Plastic Trees by Radiohead and I was picked by my guest today Jude Sherry um, Jude I wanted to ask you about um, the Maker Walk I know you piloted it in Bristol, Glasgow and Manchester what exactly does that entail? So the Maker Walk was looking at urban manufacturing um, and it's actually something that when we moved back to Cork we thought we'd focus on more here um, until we realised the scale of dereliction which we'll talk about in a little while um, but the Maker Walk was looking at mapping urban manufacturing so looking at what's been made in a city um, where it's been made and so we took an area of Bristol um, called Bedminster which is a very residential area so it's not an industrial estate or anything and the uh, manufacturing advisory organizations most people are like you know there's nothing being made there it's like walking around normal residential areas but we actually found what we did was we walked all the streets we knocked on doors of places that looked like they could be not residential, a bit more commercial. And we asked them, were they making stuff in there and what were they making? And then we recorded that and we put it on, on some maps then as well. So um, we found things like uh, bed manufacturers, main things are like windows, printers were very common. Um, but because it's in Bristol, it had a lot of animation places, um, but it also had a hot air balloon manufacturer, one of the top in the world, had a caravan manufacturer. Um, so you, there was things that like specialised and specialised um, book binders and carpenters and stuff. So it was a whole variety of that no one would have really focused on being there. Um, and in Ireland, when it comes to industry, we actually have vacancy across most of our uh, property market, except the industrial market. Um, so we don't even in Cork City, there's not very many places in Cork City that you can go and rent a small space and make things. And as we need to move towards a circular economy, we need to be able to have those making skills back. And I don't mean like we're going to be making electronic products because some products are going to be always centralized. So there's only a handful of suppliers globally of these 
high-tech products but for a lot of products around us we need the, those making skills because we also need the repair skills and we will need the remanufacturing skills and we'll need those on a local level so we're not shipping products back to China to get repaired to get sent back to us and using a huge amount of fuel um, and energy to do that so we need those those skills here as much as anything so the, the project was overall it was funded by the research council in the UK it was called redistributed manufacturing which was looking at reshoring manufacturing and bringing man it did not having centralized manufacturing process but having decentralized uh, yeah distributed manufacturing skills across the place okay and so with the data that you got from Bristol Glasgow and Manchester were you able to bring that to any like official governing bodies or anything? It would have, would have been used in the research project, which would have then informed some policy advice. So you just mentioned um, policy advice. Obviously, through an issue with dereliction, you came up with a plan. The amount of time and effort that must go into doing that, the, the gathering of data, st statistics, and then the human story, the human sides of it. There must be a lot of energy that goes into it. And when you when you finally present it, how is it received? Yeah, it's a, it, is, it is a colossal, especially derelict darling, it's been a colossal amount of time and work put into it. Me and Frank, we've been working in sustainability for so long now, we know changes don't happen overnight. We've worked, when we talk about system change, we need system change on a policy level, we need it on the individual level, so how we all behave, and we also need it on the industry level as well, the three main areas. So we know we need, you can't expect one of those areas to change alone, because you literally won't be able to do it. We all need to change it together, so that's why with Derelict Ireland particularly, we do a lot of work um, on industrial policy advice. Um, so, for instance, Frank in the UK, in, in the Eco Design Centre that he set up in Wales, he was an, a minister advisor um, on industrial and manufacturing policy and um, resource policy or material policy. We would have worked on a lot as well. We work a lot with the UN and U European Commission on training programmes around circular economy or eco design or sustainable design um, around industrial policies as well. So when it, when it came to the derelict Ireland work, we realised that when we started looking into it, okay, so the first thing would be like walking around the streets going, okay, well, why do we have this level of dereliction and vacancy? And then realizing that we have actual some laws in place, they're not perfect, they do need to change, um, but they're not being fully enforced. So there's elements of that we need new policy changes, but we also need the existing policies to actually be enforced as well. That can be the challenges. Did you give any policy advice and was it adhered to? Yeah, so with Dereliction, the derelict Ireland movement, it's the consistent involvement of so many other people on, especially more or less on Twitter, um, sharing images. And I think that's made the government realise that they can't ignore it anymore and they can't. So previous to when we started looking back on old news reports and stuff, it was like a lot of uh, arguments that look, that's dereliction is just kind of there and we just kind of have to accept it and it's not really a solution to the housing crisis and it's too complicated to do anything about like the revenue would have said that uh they were never going to bring in a vacant homes tax but now they they have relented so they have now brought one in and i think that's not just around me and frank it's around all the other people who have campaigned around it because it's it's not just about us as two people sitting in a room talking to someone it's about showing that there is a demand from the citizens for that change you know that other people the country wants it you know yeah. you can't if governments are going to make policy changes around sustainability they need to know that people are with them and so people need to show that they are with them and they will support them whether it's around our transport or our farming or around our um 
energy or homes or heating or homes or dereliction, whatever the issues are, people need to show, okay, well, I'm willing to make these changes. And so I want you to, to make that easier for me. We've kind of gone into dereliction now. Yeah, I didn't, I know, I didn't yeah. mean to. Sorry. <laughs> it's inevitable. <laughs> I know, but I didn't mean to get there yet. Okay, do you, do you want to give us another tune there? So the song is Imagine by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. imagined by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Um, is there a reason why you picked that, dude? We need to reimagine our current system. It's broken. We need to redesign a new one and we need to think beyond where we're currently at and really just, yeah, imagine a whole new world of possibilities that go beyond our current boundaries of, of economics or politics or, uh, you know, no, no religion, no countries world peace you know that goes beyond their current thinking that we really need to have hope that we can change things and I do believe we can There's, there is unfortunately like a lot of um, backlash to asking for big systems change because it is complicated and it's not easy and revolutions have only often been achieved unfortunately through violence but I do believe we can have revolutionary changes through peaceful means and Gandhi has achieved a huge amount like that so I, I like imagine for me is we need to hope we need to always believe that things yeah. can change and will change you're heavily involved in derelict Ireland with your partner frank o'connor but the impression that i get correct me if i'm wrong is that you're the, the person that does all the statistics and gets the facts how hard is it to do that for instance i know the the derelict register had 70 homes on it when a natural fact yourself and frank maybe found 700 homes you know so how's how hard is it to start mapping it and to getting statistics right when they're yeah. not actually there yeah no that is it's a it's a massive challenging issue when we first started out with frank's tread we just in terms of that different approaches we'd have through it frank would be like okay take one when we started to start to do it frank took one image and was like okay i might do another one the next day and we'll do one for a couple of weeks 
a day and see how we go and I was like oh no I need to have I need a plan and structure around it and um, mm. so luckily we didn't take my approach we would never have started it properly and mm. um, but when we started we yeah we thought we'd continue on for a few months and then we'd run out of derelict buildings but it just unfortunately went on and on and on um, and then when we were posting images of buildings people were coming back with stories about them um, everything from like their experience of the building as a child maybe it had a bakery or a shop in it but also maybe it had plans for redevelopment or maybe it sold recently so what I started to do then with the list of properties getting their addresses alone can be a challenging at times and trying to figure out what what actually building it was and what that number of the building because numbering in Cork of houses can be chaotic at times um, <laughs> And not all buildings have postal codes either, which cause problems, especially derelict buildings don't always have postal codes. So statistically, it doesn't exist doesn't anywhere. Exist, yeah. So I started to look then at all the publicly available information. Uh, and luckily, Cork City Council is very, very progressive in its uh, planning information, in its derelict registry and its heritage information. So they have one map that you can look at all the information from whether it's a protected building or an NAH building and whether it had plans and stuff. So. I was able to take that information and put it into a massive Excel sheet manually going through it all. Got to know the, the maps and the streets of names of Cork extremely well. Um, and then also looking up other information around sales information and other stuff as well. So added that then into a massive file. We, we didn't exactly know what we were going to do with it, but it really was a case of what the data brought out. And so we, we were only focused on publicly available data. I suppose a big ethos or a big, it's a big focus of what we do is trying to keep everything open and public. We we don't have private meetings if possible with people, with politicians. If we are, it's going to be on the street, um, if they request it. So it's trying to keep everything open and public, trying to keep transparency in what we do. So often we'll put stuff out on social media, and then journalists will get in touch with us about it. We don't necessarily go to journalists directly and get it out that way first so it's all about so that's why we only focus on publicly available data as well it's like if I can access it as a citizen then I can um, use that information then for everybody uh, so yeah so it was it was a colossal amount of work and I like that you know if you've ever had the Excel eyes you just blur and you all you can see when you close your eyes is cells and boxes but yes that information was extremely informative and de debunked a lot of myths around dereliction so we released a report called this is derelict Ireland that debunked 10 myths some of those were based on the legislation around the laws that we have or the constitution and then some of them were based on the data as well like that you know uh, refusals or people objecting to planning is causing problems but actually like for all the derelict buildings less than five percent of them had been refused planning not even all of those might have had in any objection to them so there's a lot of myths around that and around other issues that are causing that people think are causing problems but the biggest shock that came out of that data was that uh, the amount of heritage buildings that are in dereliction so it's um Things like half the buildings that we we looked at were in uh, architectural conservation areas. So these are areas that are deemed to be arch architectural significance to Ireland and to Cork City. And half the buildings we found derelict were in these areas. So these these are urban environments that are decaying. Um, and really we started it because of the mental health impact that it was having on us. So we were coming out of COVID, we both got COVID, we were covering Frank got a bit of long COVID, so it took him longer. We were 
then you know we're leaving the house and walking around the house around the city and we were just getting depressed with the scale of dereliction around us that it was really weighing us down we tried to avoid the city and, and walk out you know, we live in the north side, so we're walking into the Glen Park or at Blarney and stuff. So trying to, we don't have a car, so we prefer to cycle or walk places, and um, so that was really restricting our, our our mental and physical recovery as well. Not only is it in the cities though, but if you go to any rural part of the country, there's lots of dereliction there as well. And usually, like you know, if you go to like really scenic, beautiful places, say in, in Clare, around the Burn, you're going to see a house situated in a beautiful area, but it's there's a lot of dereliction rurally as well. There is, yeah. So the dereliction rurally there's dereliction uh, in town centres as well I think that was the, quite the shocker for us we, we don't we didn't have any kind of particular heritage expertise when we came back to Ireland like I like old things but it wasn't like an area focused on so we've learned a huge amount about that since we've come back and really appreciating something that you don't do as a teenager when you're younger is actually looking around your buildings and go actually they are quite unique and after living in the Netherlands and seeing how they treat their their built environment and their heritage and going okay well it doesn't need to be like a huge big fancy building to be appreciated it can be just a worker's cottages can be well maintained and well kept and can be just as beautiful with you know beautiful cobblestone streets and that work well that can be accessible as well it can you know, it doesn't have to be very high-end castles and, you know, estate houses. It's the everyday heritage and experiencing that in small villages and towns in the Netherlands is really what spurred to come back to Ireland and going, actually, these are unique. I haven't seen these buildings in other places. There are similarities with other cities but or other towns in other areas, but actually, our, yeah, our, our town centres are, are unique as much as any other country. Since I started noticing the dereliction, I have those goggles on and I can't take them off now. And it's like, I, I do find it hard to walk around the city sometimes, you know, because it seems like every everywhere I look, it's there. Literally every every street you go down. So I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, when, when you went back to the water charges and all the marches for that and that, that really worked. And I thought, well, this is a massive problem. There's a housing emergency. And we've all this dereliction and vacancy. And I thought, well, why, why aren't we marching on for this as well? I do struggle understanding why there aren't more people out protesting over the housing crisis. So there was a housing protest there probably about a month ago. And the turnout was pretty low for what I would have expected. And I think that's because we, most people will end up internalizing their housing situation as a personal failure. Um, rather than looking at the system around them or the other policies or the government. Um, so we've been because we've our society has has been economic or financially successful. There's a lot of pressure then on people who maybe haven't um, maybe achieved that financial reward. So I'm lucky in the sense I bought my home in the Netherlands at the end of 2007, right before didn't think it at the time, but right before the crash. Um, but if I hadn't have done it then, I probably wouldn't have been able to move back to Ireland. Like if I wasn't in a relationship with Frank, I wouldn't have been able to move back to Ireland because I would have had to move in with my my mother, and you know the the prospect of that would you know would be fine. But she lives a bit more rurally than I'd like, and you know it's a it's not very um, after living away and living independent for a long time, it would be imposing on my mother as well. Mm. So it's I think it is that we have a lot of pressure in Ireland to be seen to be individually financially successful. Um, we have a culture that what's considered to be private luxury and public squalor. And that's unfortunately how our cities and 
uh, urban areas and, and lifestyles are, are geared as well here. So they can say to compare that to the Netherlands, if I always found places like Amsterdam, once you can afford the accommodation, which, you know, is, is expensive as well, is that you can live a life without having to spend a lot of money because you can socialize outside because their parks are accessible, you know, any time of the day. There's seating everywhere. There is, you know, Berlin has toilets and every every small little park will have a toilet, public toilet in it. So there, there are places you can socialize, you can bring a drink yourself, you can bring a bottle of beer, you can just even go meet friends without having to spend money. Um, so it's a combination of multitude of things. Just to give another comparison as well, like I lecture a lot of students. I do a lot of international programs with students as well. And in Ireland, I find when I get them to do what's considered a customer persona, where I t- get them to take a, an ideal customer and then design a product or a solution for that. In Ireland, I ask them to think about what their ambitions are for that ideal customer. And they're generally to get a big house in the countryside. Where European or European students I work with, their ambitions would be to move to a big city, and and you know socialize in in that sense. So it's it's interesting when Frank, because Frank mostly posts the Twitter stuff, the images, and I mostly just then go with the data. But when he posts images of buildings that maybe like a terrace house in the city center, you won't necessarily get a huge response to it. If you post something that's like a suburban three to four bed semi-detached house, then you'll get a huge response because people can see themselves living in that rather than a, a smaller two-bed terrace houses. And I suppose it's, I think that's why dereliction has been in our towns and city centres allowed to prevail is because we culturally don't see our urban centres as places to raise families, to get old or to, to be young even. Like, so it's, we, don't see, we see them as a stopgap when you're a student um, or maybe your first apartment, before, not, not even that, that's probably gone for most people now anyway. But we don't see them as places that you grow old or that you have, have children in because they're not. You know, they're not livable. You, you, it's hard to live in urban spaces. I don't have children, but if I had children, the effort I would have to get to get them out to a park, to a playground, I'd end up having to buy a car and drive everywhere. Where in Amsterdam, there's playgrounds that, you know, outside your front door, most apartment blocks, every block in the city will have some sort of small, like the size we're in a small room now that's probably about eight meters squared. This is a playground size, you know. You can put a few, kids will play with anything if you give them a chance, you know. And so that how we treat our urban environments means that places that people will look at old properties and go, okay, I, I can't envision myself living there. So there is no solution to that because I can't, it's not part of our cultural psychos or whatever the word is for it. You know, don't, we don't see that as success. Um, so it can be, yeah, it's, that's a underlining. Like Frank's done a bit of research into past protests and stuff, what's worked in Ireland and it's definitely taxes. <laughs> what get people out in the streets rather than, you know, overall, bigger changes and I suppose maybe with the house I think the challenge with the housing crisis is I think some people just don't think there's a solution and that's the most depressing thing is that people just go okay well that's like fearing interviews with people at times and there's like well that's there there is no easy solution to it and so they they're not demanding anything because they don't think there is anything which is I suppose back to imagine we, we need to have that hope and imagine that there is we need to believe there is do you think it's easy to change it's no, I don't think it's easy to change, but I don't think anything in life is easy. And we're changing all the time. Everything's changing all the time. It's not like there is no change and then 
we want change here. It's it's directing that change in a way that works for everybody. That's the challenge. But we are we've Ireland's massively changed in in the last few decades. It's changing. Next year will be different to this year. We're changing all the time. It's just trying to put a direction on that change that works. So it must be really challenging every day to be involved in like looking for change in terms of you know design and especially with the housing crisis in Derelict Ireland. Where does the sense of joy and fulfilment come for you in doing that work? The sense of fulfilment comes in literally just doing it, mm. not not giving up, not stopping. I suppose the joy is, is having other people resonate with the message we're sending out, with the with their, like demanding the change that other people also ask like if no one else was interested in it we would have stopped a long time ago but it's it's other people getting on board and saying okay yeah this is we want this too that's Mm. what's that's extremely rewarding it seems it seems to me just through social media that you're getting a lot more feedback there's a lot more people on board yeah yeah yeah, it's been the last two two it's been three years now since when we first put up the first image but the last two years has definitely been escalating um, interest in it so it's you know we are mostly on Twitter but it's the media as well it's the press it's the TV the radio the newspapers there it's it's constant it's every week is multiple articles out on it did you think when you moved back to Ireland that you might we you would become the faces of that movement behind Derelict Ireland absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> no way no said like when we came back we was expecting to work more on the kind of urban manufacturing scale that's that's my passion more so than in the sense of dereliction but the need for it so we would have been looking for creative spaces manufacturing spaces understanding what resources we can use from the city what we can make from them what you know how we can bring about a circular city would have been my my initial expectation of moving back but seeing people sleeping rough outside empty properties just i can't accept that and i didn't have it in the netherlands you know they don't have rough sleeping to the level we have here they have got a housing crisis but it's not to the scale or the impacts that it's having here so it's the need for homes is too big for us then to be folk that for me personally to be able to again focus on looking for creative spaces which we do need too but the urgency is in people need homes they need places to call home initially That's do you want to give us your last tune yeah so the, the last song is get up stand up by bob marley and the whalers <laughs> Stand up.
track every Monday at 1pm on UCC 98.3 FM. Keeping Track is hosted by me, Dave Hackett. I interview people in our community from all different backgrounds and my guests also choose the music that they love. When I'm not hosting an interview, I'll be playing a random selection of alternative music, old and new. Stay up to date with the show on Instagram where I announce upcoming guests and radio documentaries. You can listen back to previous shows on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Keeping track every Monday at 1 here on UCC 98.3 FM. <laughs>